0: Today's speaker is Northland's pastor Orlando Rivera. Orlando's message is titled, Dress for Success, The Discipline of Simplicity. Scripture text for today's message is Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or He will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And now, let's join Pastor Orlando Rivera for his message, Dress for Success: The Discipline of Simplicity.
1: As you read that passage, as you heard that passage read, isn't that a beautiful passage? I mean, do you ever allow yourself to imagine what it must have been like to hear Jesus speaking about this? How beautiful it looks! He must have been out in the fields, and he points to the fields and says how wonderful and lovely they are. And this is a a very idyllic scene, and you feel great about it. And Christians mark these verses in their Bibles all the time, and it looks wonderful. But anytime we say that a passage is wonderful and beautiful, that's Christian. That's French and Christian talk to say that sounds great in church, but it doesn't work in the real world. It sounds great in church, but it doesn't work in the real world. How am I ever to be able to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? and then let everything else come to me. You see that that sounds good. But we also, we often wonder how is that ever going to happen? Well, one of the ways I think that can happen, I want to I just want to bring out to you this this morning is this that through simplicity or the discipline of simplicity, we can place ourselves in the position where God can work his character into us so that we can truly experience this peace. But as I was speaking about simplicity, I was wondering how do you define simplicity? Um, It took me three days Simplicity You would think that simplicity should be simple to define But it's not because it's different for each individual But the definition I'm working with is Simplicity is is the detachment From the control of this world and others That yields a greater intimacy with God and our neighbor Simplicity is detachment from the things of this world That keep us from seeking after God So that we can have a greater intimacy with God And move closer to Him so that though the concept is simple And we underline this passage We don't really attain this Many times we never quite get there And what, when we talk about the, the word discipline is the discipline of simplicity It's discipline because you have to do something You will never have this carefree existence on earth You will never be able to just fully rejoice in God By just hoping that it will happen one day You must go at it You must tenaciously, conscientiously say I'm going to live in this simplicity in my life It won't just happen and I say simplicity because after the road is done, after we have gone to, through this road of maturity, each year or each period, we should be gaining a greater sense of freedom from the things of this world that control us, so that we can worship God. So I want to bring some of those disciplines. And what's always interesting to me, um, every time I preach occasionally, and 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 I Joel and I never speak about you know who's going to preach what or what order, but I'm going to pick up where he left off last week at the end of it when he talked about. First, he spoke about how God places limits on us to slow us down. I want to speak about the limits that we can place upon ourselves so that we can have a greater intimacy with God and not be controlled by the world. Now, some people say, it doesn't matter. God loves me. I'm going to get to heaven. Who cares? Let me just go on my life. But I do believe that there are certain things that we can do that even though it does not affect our salvation with God, it can help us to walk in greater intimacy. Um, the business world had dis- discovered this I was reading reading a book some of you may have noticed it from the title Dress for Success The Discipline of Simplicity that's the title of a best selling book by John Malloy he wrote it in I believe it was 1975 and he was one of the first clothing engineers to, um, to corporate America and he had a thesis he said people who are who look successful and well educated will receive preferential treatment in all of their social and business encounters people who look good Basically, we'll get better a better response from people, and some of you have experienced that. I can remember last week. I was taking my wife to work, and she had just gone back there from. She was home for a while, and she's working part time. So as I was walking in, I simply had a shirt on, a tie, slot shoes, and I'm walking down the hall. And one of the her coworkers, Fuji. I love I love people from um, different countries because they don't really, not that they don't think before they say, but they say the first thing on their mind. And so she looks at me coming down the hall, and she goes, Orlando. You look like such an adult now. <laughs> you know, she's staring at me. Because before I used to walk, come take my wife to work, you know, I just have a, some sweats and shoes because I was, you know, I was a student. And he said, you look like an adult. And it is true. The way we dress many times has an impact on other people. And so that, this was his thesis, but by 1975 nobody really went out to prove this. So he went on to his famous raincoats experiment. What's the popular color of a raincoat? Beige. What else? Yellow. Black. Okay, he, he settled on those two. He, he settled on on beige and black as the two most common raincoats. And then he went to see, he wanted to see was there a difference in, in socioeconomic class as to who wears which raincoat. This is a very elitist book. You would probably get upset reading this thing. But he decided he's going to take a survey. So he went to the department stores all around New York City. And he noticed that he sent out research assistants. And when they went to um, a lower-class neighborhood to look at the department stores, they favored black raincoats 4 to 1 to beige. And then he sent out a team of researchers to an uh, upper-class neighborhood, and he found that they preferred beige to black, also 4 to 1. And so he says, okay, I, I got something here. So now he's going he's to start his experiment. He took a guy wearing the same clothes, he had the same shoes on, same suit, same everything. And all he did was put a different raincoat on him. One had the beige, and he took a picture and and one had the black, he took the picture. He used the same guy, put them side by side, and he called people in to look at the picture. He had 1,362 people come in and looking at these pictures, and they just looked it over, and he asked them a series of questions about the men and what they could discern from the picture. And the last question was, which of the two men is the most prestigious? 87% or 1,118 said the man in beige was the most prestigious of the two. And he said, okay, and then he keeps on... Throughout this book, he keeps on all these crazy experiments. I can't see a man spending 15 years worrying about colors and shades, and pu- but this is what he did. And then he said, "Okay, let me try this again." He decided he's gonna he was gonna pose as a delivery person, and he he wore wore a nice suit and he would go and ask a personal secretary to an executive, "I have a personal I have personal papers for your boss. Can I come in and see you?" And he did when he wore the black raincoat. It took him a day and a half to deliver 25 paper. 25 papers and when he wore the beige raincoat it only took him a single morning to get all of them delivered and the premise of his book he tries to show men that at the, depending on how you dress yourself it, it can impact people on you now let me ask you a question I don't know maybe it was obvious to me but did it make a difference inherently as to which raincoat you wore as to the person's ability did it make him more competent or, or smarter or brighter no but there is there's a sense that you know people get impressions from you based on what you dress, how you dress. I believe in the Christian life, not as shallow as that, but in the Christian life, there are certain disciplines you can place on yourself on yourself, certain limits that you can place on your life that will allow you to succeed in the Christian life, that will allow you to have this joyful attitude of saying, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness that allows us detachment from all the things that control us. Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter I mean Matthew 13 About the parable of sowing the seed And he talked about the seed The person who comes to know Christ And the thorns begin to choke out the life in them We are in danger Of having the Christian life choked out of us Because it's just not going to happen And so what I want to do Is introduce you to three disciplines Only three That's all I have time to do But the book that helped start me on this Thinking about this Was called Celebration of Discipline By Richard Foster It it got me reading other books on, On the disciplines of the Christian life and, and there was a pattern People who walked with God from the Old Testament to the New Testament In church history They all seemed to have some of these, these disciplines as part of how they behaved And so I want to give, give us three disciplines And the goal, remember this Christian simplicity is detachment from the things that control us So that we can have an increased intimacy with God And with other people around us Now when you think of detachment You think of things that control you I'm sorry but you can't. the only place you can start is money Money normally controls most people. And in his book, Howard Dayton writes, the book is called Your Money, Frustration of Freedom. And and part of the preface, he, he, he writes this, our checkbooks tell us more about our priorities than anything else. That's why Jesus talks so much about money. 16 of the 38 parables were concerned on how to handle money and possessions. Jesus Christ said more about money than any than about heaven and hell combined. In the Gospels, an amazing 1 out of 10 verses, 288 in all, deals directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Do you think money is important? He also quotes, um, I think it's Oscar Wilde, he said, When I was a boy, I believed that money was the most important thing in all of life. As a man, I know it is. There is such a sense that money tugs at our loyalty at God. Money continually fights us as we try to serve God. And and that's what he brings out here. He says, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus Christ has given us a strong warning. That whatever you treasure most in this world, whatever you care about, whatever you seek, that's where you're going to invest all of your energy, and that's, in fact, what you're going to love. And But when I talk about money, I'm not sure what perception you may have as to how people talk about money. I'm not going to do two things. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get on the case of rich people, and I'm not going to ask you for money. So, relax. Money is not about, the, the, the Bible's teaching on money is not about wealth. Wealth is irrelevant to the subject. What is relevant is your attitude towards money. Your attitude towards money is going to do one of two things. It's going to either draw you closer to God, or it's going to pull you away. Plain and simple. Either your attitude towards money is going to make you get closer to God, or pull you further away. You know, he, comes, he, he, he continues on. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be good. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That... We're talking about a perception. What is your attitude? And one of the disciplines of the Christian life that have always that has been there from the beginning is the, is the discipline of giving. The discipline of giving is a discipline where you begin to look at someone else's concerns, someone else's needs, as more important than yourself. I really don't understand this, this concept in Scripture where it says that he who will deny himself will, will, gain, him, will gain life. I don't understand that, but they, yet there seems to be this constant emphasis... Serve God, serve your fellow man, and somehow in the middle, your needs are going to be met. And so this is what the scriptures are teaching us here. And it, and it talks about your attitude. So the first attitude I want you to begin to think about is this. How can I use my resources or what God gives me for the purpose of blessing someone else? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, or beginning at verse 10, it, it talks about it is God who provides all that you need anyway. And so it, he begins in, in verse 10, the apostle Paul says, Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for the food, for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving. It is saying almost that God is, will say, I will bless you as much as you can handle. If you can only have the attitude of saying I'm going to use what I have here for the benefit of other people. Simplicity, the reason why I gave that definition it is specific enough that I can preach on it but vague enough that you have to figure out what simplicity looks like in your life. I can't tell you that. A millionaire and someone who makes $15,000 a year each one of them could be living in simplicity or not. Take a millionaire. If he gave 70% of his income to the Lord's work and had $300,000 of discretionary income he probably could afford a bigger house than I could he could afford a better car and send his kids to better schools but just because he has all these external trappings of quote unquote success does that mean he is not living in simplicity? we can't say that his attitude is different he's not being controlled by his resources but he is free in giving or the person who makes $15,000 a year and says well the Lord knows I would love to give if I had money but since I don't I can't give anything or I'll give every once in a while See, simplicity is not so much about the external things that we see in people, but what is the actual heart value here? What, what's, what's inside? See, that's what God is looking at. He's looking at your heart and saying, but do you serve me? Or are you being controlled by this? So the discipline of giving is one of those ways to say, I'm going to rip myself from the control of money. Many of us need to be able to say, I'm going to determine, predetermine beforehand, that I'm going to give to the Lord's work. Why? Because... I trust God to provide my needs anyway, and i 'm not controlled by this thing and so when I work harder, you know it 's not only for the benefits of me and my family but it's, but they benefit the whole world community. We have a sense that we give, and what 's interesting to me is that the, the New Testament never commands us how much to give you know in the Old Testament, they tell us give ten percent, they tell you clearly that's well, they give more than ten percent actually when you consider all the offerings they did, but the scriptures never tell us you know Paul says that. In verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 8 I am not commanding you But I want to test your sincerity of of the love By comparing it with the earnestness of others He's saying I'm not even going to tell you how much to give Actually I think what he's really saying is The sky's the limit You don't have to set an artificial limit As to how much you can give Because if you're living in radical dependence upon God To meet all your needs Then you have a freedom to say I'm not controlled by this I'm not controlled by how much money I make Or how much is in my bank account Because it's the Lord God himself who provides for me you know, there's a habit that my wife and I start doing every once in a while, that when we receive a check for anything, we say, God, we give you thanks because you provided our needs. This week it was through a check. Next week it can be through a friend, or it can be through anything else. But whether you earn it, quote unquote, or you receive it, or whatever, it is God who provides for you. And you begin to, to let loose and say, I'm not controlled by this thing. But, we should, but if you wanted somewhere to start, start with 10%. You know, in Matthew 22, 23 Jesus says that the Pharisees gave 10% on everything, including their gift income, and, and yet they forgot to have love and justice and mercy. But he still said giving 10% was fine. But what I want us to think about is a scandalous invitation to be free and say, it doesn't matter, I can give because God is giving to me. It's the attitude towards wealth. The discipline of giving helps us to put feet to our, our concerns not to be controlled. But anybody who knows anything about addictive behaviors, you know they come in clusters or clumps. If you, if, if you have one addiction in one area, then usually there's another one in a, that's following. And so another discipline that I wanted to, to bring out to you, which isn't very popular, is the discipline of fasting. Not eating. Abstaining from something that's normally good. For the purpose of clearing your life of distraction and control to be able to listen more to God. Now this is another discipline that isn't that in Scripture it is nowhere commanded for you for us to do. Same thing with giving. It doesn't tell us exactly how much we should give. But there's a sense that some of these things, as we look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's a divine expectation that we give. Because as we give, we begin to have a bigger bank account in heaven. As we give, we have a greater intimacy with God. As we give, we say, My treasure is in heaven, not on earth. And so that helps us walk the Christian life. So it's not a It's not like a command, this is how much you have to give, or God isn't going to love you if you don't give. But it's a divine expectation. If you're living a life of carefree simplicity, of not being controlled by things, you'll give. And the same thing with fasting. In our passage in Matthew chapter 6, right before we get there, in Matthew 6, um, I mean Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 16, Jesus talks about, When you fast, do not look sober as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that no one, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Once again, fasting, abstaining for something, has been, it happened in the Old Testament. If you have a concordance on the back of your reference Bible, look up the word fasting. Even pagans fasted. There was a sense that they needed to, do, to free themselves from all the distractions of this world to be able to hear God better. When Daniel in 9.3, when he begins to have a question, he said, I determined by prayer and supplication and fasting with sackcloth and ashes to find out what God was saying. See, what fasting does for us is another way to pry ourselves free. To pry ourselves free from those things which control us. And some I know some people say food doesn't matter to me, you know. I can eat or not eat. It may not be food for you. It may be TV for you. You may watch so much television that you have no time to read your Bible, to talk to your family, to do your homework, or whatever else it is. TV can be the idol in your life. Or it could be shopping. Some of, some of us will probably do well. and I'm sure this is easy to do now after Christmas because you're broke. But it's easy to say, Some people have to say, I can't shop for a while because I'm controlled by this. We need to look at whatever is controlling us, those things which are difficult for us, and break free of them for a period of time, so that we can seek after God and be able to hear Him clearly. You see, we will never be able to have this carefree joy of skipping through the tulips and the lilies saying, God is my provider, if I'm constantly being controlled by other things. And only, you see, once again, this discipline and simplicity will look different on each individual. You know, some people will give up food, and others will give up TV or whatever else. You know, another one I need to give up is talking. We talk so much because we want to control people. They have to see it our way. If they were logical, they would see that my argument's correct. And part of that discipline is saying, "God, I don't have to be in control of the situation. You're going to handle it. You're going to make it happen in such a way that'll give you glory and honor. So I can shut up. I can be quiet because you are the one who is a provider for all my needs, and you will get it." I knew I, I read a, a biography of a man named George Mueller. And I just couldn't understand this guy. He had orphanages that literally fed thousands and thousands of orphans, and he brought them in. And the way, you know his fundraising thing was? His fundraising method was, I'm simply going to tell my Father in Heaven, and He'll provide. He did this for years. Thousands of children, having to construct buildings. And his, 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 his said was, I'm going to wait. I'm going to trust my God. So why do you need to fast for Every once in a while, I, I say, this week, I am not going to the gym. In a health-driven culture, you can be obsessed with something as simple as gym, as, as getting your body in shape. And so sometimes I have to get away from that because, well, I can only work out in the morning, so if I go work out in the morning, then I can't have my devotions. And I, You know, what is it with you? You probably have another area that you need to pull away from, and perhaps you need to let go for a while. And a warning here is this. We often think that we have to put something, some things away just for a little while. But the scriptures also warn us: there's some things you just don't mess with. There's some things you just have to get rid of. It's called radical amputation. I'm not going to do this anymore. In Matthew chapter five, when it talks about adultery, he says um, in verse 29, "If your right hand causes, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away." It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. There are some things you just don't mess with. There are some things that have so much power over you, even though they shouldn't, and even though you might be disciplined for a while, you just need to get rid of them because you shouldn't even bother with them because they're going to mess up your life with God. For me, that's the television set. It is. I grew up in a home, four bedrooms, six TVs, a TV in every bedroom, in the living room, in the kitchen, and we almost got in the bathroom, but we realized that wasn't too practical. But television was something that constantly took my attention. And for me to have a television in the house was always a temptation. When I was tired or when I had extra time, instead of spending time with my wife, or instead of reading or sleeping or something, what I thought was productive, it would constantly take my time. And, you know, you know, my family would come in and when we first got married, we didn't have a TV for eight months. It was great. We actually had time to talk to each other. And then my family couldn't stand it. And so my brother-in-law buys me this big 25-inch TV. And it sticks in the room. And I'm fighting against it. And I'm I'm trying every discipline I know. You know, unplug the TV, put it in the closet so they would be harder to get to. And, then I, and I kept on going back and forth. And I'd be back into the thing. So I got rid of the TV again. Then my other brother from New York, he comes down and says, You don't have a TV? So he goes and he buys me a 19-inch color TV from Sears. And I'm like, you know, and I'm like, well, I should be able to discipline myself. This is no, well, I've given up. I can't discipline myself in that area I know it sounds trivial to you But for me I, you know, I had to tell my wife We got to give this thing away Because there's I can't fight that sin Why bother? It's not worth the effort for me So you have to determine your life Some things you have to stop for a while So that you can get better clarity to God Other things you have to get rid of Totally If you ever hope to walk a life of godliness Ever to have freedom I want to talk about The last discipline I want to talk about Is the sin This is the one discipline That is most ignored by most Christians it is one, it's the most ignored of the Ten Commandments. Any takers? I think I heard it. The Sabbath. The fourth commandment. It's the Sabbath to cease our labor, to quit from what we're doing. That is the most sinned against commandment that I think has ever been written. And they say pastors in general, usually we, we break it most than any, more than anyone else. The reason why we break that commandment so much is because we believe Whether we'll admit this or not, that everything depends upon me. We honestly believe that if I don't work, I can't provide for my family. If I don't do this, I can't succeed in my job. If I don't do that, you know, and and we come to God and and we say, yeah, I hear it, it sounds good, but I can't stop working. And, you know, I have to work 19 hours a day. I have to. I mean, or how is I going to succeed? I had a friend in college who used to brag about how much his father used to give him. But his father was a lawyer and he spent usually 19 hours a day at work. And one time we're in the cafeteria and he's talking about this. And he finally admitted. But it would have been nice if I could have just seen him once in a while. It would have been nice if I could have spoke with him once in a while. He missed fellowship with his father because his father got so caught up in providing for the family's needs that he forgot the family. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 21, uh, I mean 31. God reminds us that in the very fabric of creation, there was a work-rest rhythm. There was a work-rest rhythm. You know, after each day, God saw all that He made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And it goes after every day. There was evening, and there was morning. There was a pattern where you work, you rest, there's completion, there's resolution. It, It allowed time for reflection. I mean, some of us who are horrible in breaking the Sabbath might have to start with simply saying one hour a day every appliance is going to be off and I'm going to talk to my family members all right 30 minutes i mean i don't think we could do that you know all right 30 minutes or i'm just going to stop and think i'm going to take time for reflection god built that into his creation you notice at the end of each day he was able to say he looked at all that he did he looked at his industry and said it is good he reflected upon it there are sometimes, some of us get caught up in dead-end jobs for years and years and years, and then we wake up one morning and say, what is my life amounting to? And part of the reason that happens is because we never took the time to reflect. To reflect and say, it is good. Can, how many people can honestly say, I look at my relationship with my wife my children, it is good. I look at my relationship to my job, my coworkers, it is good. I look at my relationship to my environment, and it is good. You see, there is a time where we need to stop and God is saying, yo, slow down. Look at life and be able to reflect upon it. But it also says after the seventh day, God rested from his labor and he blessed that day. He made it a blessing. God took some time to have recreation. Recreation. Having fun, hanging out, sailing, boating, whatever you like, basketball, knitting. Recreation. Say it slower. Re. Creation, renewing yourself, redoing yourself, so that you can be refreshed. In Psalm 92, it's, that's a, a psalm for the Sabbath day. And that psalm in the Jerusalem Bible says, "It is good to give thanks to, it is good to give thanks to God. It is good to play before the Lord. It is good to have a time of praise and play." We have this notion that the Sabbath should be a, a boring a day. Not at all. It should be a day of rejoicing and having fun and slowing down. It is good to play and rest before God. And He gives us a Sabbath because we take ourselves too seriously. It's, it's a check on our ambition. It slows us down to say, you're not all that important. You're not. I mean, you look at the, the Hebrew structure of the words. It says there was evening and there was morning, first day. There was eve, and now we think of, what do you mean evening and morning? One author puts it this way. In the evening, when we stop, God, without our help, begins His creative day. God begins to create all things Without our help In the morning he wakes us up and says Hey come with me Enjoy what I've done Add to it But we realize that at the end of our day We have to stop and rest And God is saying when you're sleeping I'm not This is my world And you don't need to be so caught up in your life As though you're really something You need to stop and recognize Have a radical dependence upon me That I'm going to provide your needs And you know what? I'm going to dare you to, to take a Sabbath. Because God dares you to take a Sabbath Sabbath and see that He'll provide for you. It's like a litmus test. I mean, you should never put a fleece before God, but unless He allows you to do it. Uh, and He's telling you, take a Sabbath and I'll prove to you that I'll meet all of your needs. Leviticus chapter 25. Last scripture passage I'm going to read. Leviticus 25. You know, He told the Israelites when there was a theocracy, He told them to take a whole year off. Don't do anything for a year. Stop and play. Some of you would like that, right, Tom? He would go touring with a band or something. You know, but there's a he told him to take a whole year off, and we can't take a day off because we're too important. And listen to what God says to them. In Leviticus chapter 25, beginning at verse 18. Leviticus 25, beginning at verse 18. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws. And you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live in their live there in safety you may ask what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops and the lord replies to them i will send you such a blessing in the sixth year sixth year that the land you that the land will yield enough for three while you plant during the eighth year you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes god is saying look give me six days of real honest labor six days of real honest labor Take the seventh day off and I'll cover you. Your tab is covered. Don't worry about it. I'm going to provide for you. That's what the Lord God is saying. And he's saying, I dare you. I dare you. And he gives us a Sabbath to help us stop, not take ourselves so seriously, and say, okay, God, I'll listen to you. The Sabbath for William Wilberforce had this effect. Remember, the Sabbath is a blessing, but because we think we're so important, to most of us we feel it's like a curse. William Wilberforce, who was a, a politician in the early 19th century, you know, he was a kind of guy, you know, he a kind of, he was a very godly man. But like most politicians, you ever see the news coverage, like when someone gets fired, you know, all the other guys like kind of swarm around and say, oh, I feel so bad for him and this and that, and everybody chums up and sees they're going to get the promotion? Well, there was a cabinet opening, Wilber- William Wilberforce was rumored to be there, and he was so caught up with this that he couldn't do his job and whatever. And then, but this is what he wrote in his journal on the Sabbath. Blessed be to God for the day of rest and religious occupation, wherein earthly things assume their true size, ambition, is stunted. The the Sabbath day, in computer terms, closes the loop. It stops us from all the programming we're doing and allows us to stop, pay attention to God, hear from Him, not be caught up and controlled by this world, and allows us that wonderful freedom to say, I'm going to enjoy God's creation because I'm going to depend upon Him and I'm going to obey Him. God says to do this and I'll bless you, so I'm going to do it and I'm going to watch God bless me. It's a promise of His. It's a a challenge to you. And and as the new year is coming, I figure this is the last sermon you'll hear at Norfolk this year. If you haven't got your resolutions yet, how about one of these three? How about stretching yourself in the aspect of giving? How about taking something that you need to fast from, something that's controlling you? That you need to put away for a while and say, I'm not going to deal with that for a while because I need to search after God. Those things were suggestions. But a command from the Lord is take a Sabbath. Put it this way. I had to take a Sabbath, the Lord will break you. That's what happened to the Israelites. He says that in the prophecy when they were led into captivity. They didn't take a Sabbath and the Lord broke them. You know, we get burned out and we get hurried because we just don't listen. And we think we're too important. So I wanted, I wanted to present that to you as a challenge. But if you ever want to live a life of simplicity, of freedom, of joy, begin to consciously take away those things that control you. Begin to put them aside and begin to say, God, I'm going to take time to listen to you so that I can follow you. I'm going to seek you you first, change my vision instead of looking at this world or look at the world to come. And I can promise you, 100% guarantee that God will bless you. Why? Because he says so. That's his character Please pray with me. Father, when we look at the passage that says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. It's a wonderful promise. It's a great verse. But we have to admit, God, there are so many obstacles that we see in front of us. There are so many things that keep us from being able to give our attention to you. Father, I pray that you will allow us to have obedience. Teach us, O oh God, that you, O oh God, have given us these disciplines and many others like them so that we, O oh God, could be placed in a position to be used of you. These disciplines are not something to brag about. It's not We don't brag about how much we give or whether we fast or we keep the Sabbath because they don't help us all that much. But they place us in a position where we can actually slow down and hear you, O oh God, and be able to follow you. And to have a radical dependence that since you provide for me, I don't have to have the anxiety of providing for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that they, O oh God, may look at one of these disciplines of giving, of fasting, of Sabbath, and the many others and begin to apply these into their lives. In the name of Christ, I can say that it will have a good effect because you promised this. And we love you because you're a God who loves us first and keeps his promises. In Christ's name, amen. Will you please stand for the benediction? May the God who has given us all that we need for life and godliness fill your life with His presence so that you can not only hear that promise but believe it in every single day of your life. You're dismissed. Go in God's peace.